0: Fill my cup. Fill my cup, Lord. May each one of us become whole as we focus more and more on Jesus. In his name, amen. Can you hear me all right? Is my microphone working? I see, I see some nose some yeses. The two people are sitting next to each other. One, one says yes, the other one says no. <laughs> How about the rest of you in the back? Can you hear in the back? Okay, I see some up for thumbs, so we've got a little more volume there. Monday, we talked about uh, created for community in that... Uh, God is three in one. God lives in eternity in community and created Adam and Eve also to live in community with each other. And that living in community means that we don't evaluate, we don't judge each other because at the end of the day, that is representative of selfishness. And any time we are looking at others and comparing ourselves with others, we are evaluating them and we are essentially being selfish because we are saying they are smarter than I am, they're dumber than I am, they're not as good-looking as I am. It's all about us. And so it ends up being selfishness, which is, of course, the essence of sin And so as we build communities and as we live together in communities, in churches, church fellowships, the question we have is, what do you see? And we talked about that yesterday. We talked about Simon, and Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? And of course, he didn't. He saw externals. Simon saw the sinful rather than the possibilities. Jesus saved Simon when he gave him unmerited favor. He gave him grace. And that's the same way Jesus saved Mary, unmerited favor. So we remember the saving of Simon and give to each other what they don't deserve. We give to each other what we don't deserve, which is grace, which is love and acceptance there would be no more passovers with jesus they had their last there would be no more sharing of wine and breaking of bread with jesus because they had their last there would be no more suppers with jesus because the last supper was over The Last Supper was not exactly a love feast. The disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest on the way to the supper. Can you believe James and John had the nerve to ask Jesus for the right and left in his kingdom? And they even had their mommy do the asking. The disciples were arguing like children around the supper table. Who will be first? I get that seat. Oh, no, you don't. I was here first. Don't push me. I'll push you if I like. Judas confronted during supper with his intent on betraying Jesus. I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. No, this was no family reunion meal where all was sweetness and light. Jesus, with heaviness, coming over him and knowing that his time was short, seeks to prepare his disciples for what's coming. He predicts his betrayal. Lord, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? The disciples are not concerned particularly about the fact that he will be betrayed. They are concerned about whether they are the ones that are going to do it. And, of course, Jesus predicts Peter's denial And Peter says, not me, Lord, no, sir, I would die first. And then Jesus, amidst all this discord among his disciples, then in his final words, before he takes the last walk down the long corridor to the gas chamber, in his final act before they lead him to the electric chair, he pours out his heart to God seeking to prepare them for what is to come, Jesus prays. He prays for us. My father tells a story of a time when his mother went and asked him to take a, a large jar of water to his dad. His dad was plowing the fields in North Dakota, and his mother figured that his dad would be thirsty and so gave him a bottle of water to take out to his father. So my dad walked out toward the field where my grandfather was plowing, and as he went over the rise and looked down to where his father was, he saw that the horses were stopped, the plow was stopped, and his dad was kind of working around the back of the plow, and he thought that possibly something had broken on the back of the plow, and his dad was fixing it. He walked toward his father closer and closer, and as he got very close, he realized that his father was not working on the plow. His father was praying. Kneeling by the plow, he was praying. My dad thought for a moment that he was almost on holy ground as he got close and he was able to hear what his father was saying in the prayers. And he was praying for each one of his nine children by name in the middle of the field as the horses were shaking their halters and making noise like they wanted to pull the plow. And my dad was totally impressed by the fact that in the middle of that work, his dad was praying for him, and he stood there and listened to his name, Reinhold, being mentioned. By his father. Nothing quite so important as significant as hearing your parents pray for you. And it made a significant impact on my father's life. So Jesus, just before he traverses the Kidron Valley for the last time to the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, let us pray. And he pours out his heart to God. And in the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in the Bible in John 17, he prays in three parts. The first part, he prays for himself. The second part, he prays for his disciples, those that are with him. And the third, he prays for us. If there's any prayer in the Bible where we are included in the prayer, it's this prayer, because it is here that Jesus says in John 17, 20, My prayer is not for them alone, that is, his disciples that are around him. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That's Jesus praying for us just before he's crucified. What are the last thoughts that he has in his mind when he prays for us? Mrs. White says, the instruction given me by the one of authority is that we are to learn to answer the prayer recorded in the 17th chapter of John. We are to make this prayer our first study. We are to answer the prayer of Jesus. Well, what is the prayer? What is the message that Jesus communicates in this prayer? What does Jesus pray for when he thinks of us 2,000 years ago, less than 24 hours from the gallows? What does he think of when he prays for us? I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. He prays for us to live in community. He prays for us to live as one. The last plea of Jesus to his father for us is that we live in community, in love, one for another. And we need to, and Ellen White says, we need to answer that prayer in our churches, in our community, in our homes, by living as one. He did not pray for our faith. May they have strong faith. He did not pray for our doctrinal purity. He did not pray for our wisdom. He didn't pray for perfect performance. He prayed for unity as he is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit so that we may be one with each other and with him that all of them may be one." A minister was preaching on this text once, and a bright-eyed three-year-old girl was listening intently as he explained that God wanted them all to get along and love each other. God wants us all to be one, he said, to which the little girl replied, but I don't want to be one, I want to be four. Our national church, our international church, in some ways is not demonstrating this unity very well today. Does your local church demonstrate this unity and this oneness? Why is this unity so important? What's important about living as one? Jesus continues, the first reason, May they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. What good does it do to preach that Jesus is sent by the Father if we don't show in our lives the unity that Jesus has with the Father? What satisfaction is there to holding to the truth if the grip on truth doesn't hold us together in unity? What merit is there in true theories about truth if there's no love in the lives? It is as basic and simple as you can't communicate what you don't live. When we live in unity, we communicate God. So Jesus prays for our unity because he knows it's the only way to affect the spread of the gospel. We talk about evangelism, and we have doctrines to communicate, and that's all well and good. But communicating doctrines without demonstrating in those doctrines in our lives is a futile exercise. Ellen White says the world needs to see worked out before it the miracle that binds the hearts of God's people together in Christian love. The world needs to see us living in love, in unity with each other. It is easy to love everyone in theory, isn't it? (laughs) Do you love everyone? Oh, yes, I love everyone. Lucy said, I love humanity. It's people I can't stand. (laughs) (laughs) And that's so true. It's easy to say, oh, I love humanity. But then there are people involved in that humanity, and some of them are not very lovable. Ellen White again says, is it the purpose of God that his children shall blend? It is the purpose of God that his children shall blend in unity Do they not expect to live together in the same heaven Is Christ divided against himself? If we are homesick for heaven, where we will live in unity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, should we not create little heavens on earth in our communities, in our churches, for that is the way we expect to live in heaven? Let's make people homesick being in our churches and then maybe people won't leave our churches maybe young people won't leave the church when they feel like their home there the second reason that Jesus offers I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one Jesus wants us to experience what he has experienced what he has prepared for us in heaven He wants us to live together in unity. I have twin daughters. There they are. Their mother is in the middle, by the way, in case you didn't. They're identical twins. They're born thirteen minutes apart. They spent nine months sharing the same environment. They lived in the same home for twenty years. They went to the same school, took the same classes for 14 years. They got married on the same day. They do have different husbands. (laughs) Being twins goes only so far. They each have three children. Two girls, 19 years old. Two boys, 16 years old. Two girls, 14 years old. They're alike in most every way. It's not hard for my daughters to live together in unity. Our church was born in the United States of America. It grew up in the same culture. It developed its organization in the same social context. It grew its theological roots in the same religious soil. We started as a homogeneous church of like-minded people. If we did not always agree and we didn't, at least we could argue from the same platform of cultural and social experience. Today we have a multi ethnic, multicultural, multilingualistic international church. What is the glue that will hold us together? What is the glue that will hold us together in worldwide unity? I broke a lamp and my wife asked me to glue it back together. I had a lot of choices, hot glue, instant glue, wood glue, gorilla glue, epoxy glue. There's multiple kinds of glue. I had to choose what glue would be best to hold the lamp together. What is the glue that will hold our church together? Jesus came to bring us into family of God as brothers, yet religious hatred and violence run rampant through the entire civilized world ethnic cleansing is happening today. You think maybe that only happened during the era of Hitler and the Nazis. But it happens all around the world today. It's a euphemism for mass murder. Israelis and Palestinians die in strife of different visions of the Holy Land. The list of religious-inspired conflicts goes on and on in every corner of our world forces of religion and culture race and language poverty and wealth are tower of babel like fragmenting people into groups of hatred and even in the united states one nation under god unity supposedly we are growing ever more polarized and divided to left and right what will hold us in common that transcends our differences Will we be able to stand together while our countrymen are breaking up into enclaves of hatred? The struggle for civilization has always been the struggle for unity. The great golden ages of civilization have been periods of commonality when large parts of the world more or less were united by common values. You would think that we live in an enlightened age, but it's amazing to think there's been more death from religiously inspired conflict in our century than during the Inquisition. There's been more persecution in our century than during the time of narrow and pagan Rome. Of course, there's more people to persecute there are today than there were back then. Will we find our identity in tribalism of independent national churches, or will we find cross-cultural unity in the faith of our fathers? Will we fracture over the trinity, over the nature of Christ, over the style of worship, over dress? Or can we hold together, finding our identity in that which separates us rather than that which divides us? Jesus came to tear down walls that we build between us. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus has destroyed the barrier. There's no, neither Greek nor Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. So Jesus prays for our unity so we can be a witness and the world will believe in him. So we can taste the heavenly experience of unity like he has with his Father. And the third reason that he prays for our unity found in verse 25 in John 17 in his prayer is I in them and you in me may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me even as you have loved loved them even as you have loved me what will the world know that God loves them as God loves the son not just that God loves Christians but he loves the world Not just that God loves the responsive, but he loves all. Our unity is to portray that love. People see how we love one another. People see how we live in harmony with one another. We tell you the truth. How do you know it's the truth? You can see it in our lives. And how we love one another, how we dwell together in unity. What is the glue? The glue is love, and that's the subject of our next two talks, tomorrow and Friday. We'll talk about love. Ellen White again says, Union with Christ and with one another is our only safety in these last days. Let us not make it possible for Satan to point to our church members, saying, Behold how these people standing under the banner of Christ hate one another. It's only under the banner of love, the banner of unity with Jesus Christ that we will survive as a community of faith, as churches, and even, yes, as individuals. You know, it's a little bit like an orchestra. An orchestra has one conductor, but are all the people playing the same instrument, playing the same tune, playing the same material? No, everyone's very different. They're all playing different instruments. There's a few that are playing cellos. There's a few that are playing trumpets. There's a few with trombones, some on the timpani. But it's a beautiful sound of music. If there are those in the church who are following another conductor other than Jesus, the confusion resulting, the lack of unity will be displayed and will not attract people to the music we play. It will not even attract us to our own music. So we need to live like the orchestra, unity and diversity, unity in differences. There's no way that God created us all to be the same. If we were all the same, some of us wouldn't need to be. We have variety. If the body were all head, just each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. If all the body were head or foot or hand, it would be useless. If you all had all the same convictions I had, then you would be useless. Ellen, East, Ellen White again says, Harmony and union existing among the men of very dispositions is the strongest witness that can be born that God has sent his son into the world to save sinners. We have a taste of heaven. We have a taste of heaven. We have a feel for what his heaven is like when with our differences, we love each other. With our differences, we live in unity. So Jesus prays for our unity, and he gives these three reasons. We review the three reasons. So the world will believe, so we could experience heavenly unity, so the world will know of his love. Do you know what happened in the early church? But the early Christians began to look for defects in one another. Dwelling upon mistakes, giving place to unkind criticism, they lost sight of the Savior and of the great love he had revealed for sinners. They became more strict in regard to outward ceremonies, more particular about the theory of faith, and more severe in their criticisms. What happened when they lost sight of Jesus? They became more strict in regard to outward ceremonies. They attended church more often and were more concerned about the style of worship when they lost sight of the person they were worshiping. They became more particular about the theory of faith. They talked about truth instead of living the truth. They argued about righteousness by faith instead of living righteousness by faith. They became more severe in their criticisms. They focused on the faults of others instead of reflecting on their own needs and on the love of Jesus Christ. We need to spend more time every day thinking about Jesus, thinking about his love, thinking about the last hours he spent on earth, and living in unity with each other. Do you know how Jesus handled the problems that other people had? He wrote them in the dust where they could be erased. Let's be careful we don't divide into groups. We have hundreds of Protestant churches today. Why is that? Because a lot are focusing not on Jesus, but are concerned about fine points of of doctrinal differences. A comedian, Emo Phillips, used to tell this story. In conversation with a person I had recently, I asked, are you Protestant or Catholic? My new acquaintance replied, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He answered, Baptist. Me too, I said. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist, he replied. Me too, I shouted. We continued to go back and forth. Finally, I asked, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879, or Northern Baptist Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Regions Council of 1912, or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region of 1912. He replied, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, Die, heretic. It's a funny story, but there's some truth behind that, isn't there? So often we focus on what divides us rather than on what unites us. Jesus, after his last supper, prays for our unity. What kind of unity? Not uniformity, but unity in diversity. Robert Johnson said absolute doctrinal unity is achieved by religious movements on the verge of senility. Each of us approach the teachings of the church and the scriptures from different perspectives, from different backgrounds. That's not to say there should not be doctrinal agreement on basic issues. But our unity is not found in creedal statements, it's found in Jesus Christ. It is the mind of Satan that keeps, that seeks to develop robot uniformity. The Seventh day Adventist church, in its Movement in Evangelism, reaching out to other denominations, published a book in 1944 that was titled Bible Readings for the Home. Any of you have or seen that book? Oh, I see a lot of you have. It has all the doctrines laid out with the scriptural support and so on and so forth. In that book is a poem, at least in the original book. I don't know if it's been published in all those subsequent editions but the original book has this poem entitled The Bigot's Creed. Believe as I believe, no more no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, and only then I'll fellowship with you. That I am right and always right I know because my own convictions tell me so. And to be right is simply this, to be entirely and in all respects like me. To deviate a jot or to begin, to question, doubt, or hesitate is sin. Let us sink the drowning man, if he'll not swim, upon the plank that I throw to him. Let us starve the famishing, if he'll not eat my kind of quantity of bread and meat. Let freeze the naked too, if he'll not be supplied with garments such as made for me. T'were better that the sick should die than live unless they take the medicine I give. T'were better sinners perish than refuse to be conformed to my peculiar views. T'were better that the world stood still than move in any way I do not approve. We must be careful not to use the truth as bricks to build ivory towers for ourselves, to build walls around our churches. The truth is to build bridges to people. Our unity is not for better defending ourselves from the world, but for the purpose of showing the world's love of God. And as I said, the next two days we'll talk about the unifying force of God's love. I remind you what I said last night. I have, there's a few more of these books left at the Southern Adventist University booth in the building next door. Once upon a time in Fenton Forest, there was a forest family fight. It all began at murky marsh in the upper arm of Paddle Pond where Bucky Beaver was cutting down some trees to make his dam over Crashing Creek Higher, so that he could build a larger house for his larger family. He had not cut very far past the bark of the tree when Scamper the Squirrel came chattering down the tree, squealing at the top of his lungs. Stop destroying my house. What do you think you're doing? I'm building my dam higher and my house larger, replied Bucky, as he began to gnaw on the tree again. But you're tearing down my house, "'This is my tree!' Scamper was so angry, he screamed at the top of his lungs and bounced up and down on his legs. At about the same time, Bright Bluebird appeared at the opening of a hole in the tree. "'What's going on?' Bright said. "'Bucky, I, Bucky and I live here, too, and why are you cutting on this tree?' "'I have to live. I'm working on my dam and my house. "'I need trees,' Bucky exclaimed. "'I have a growing family.' The loud arguments and the noise brought other inhabitants of the forest to see what was going on. I think Bucky's right, said Gruff the Bear. Scamper and Bright should move to some other tree. And how long will, will it be until Bucky cuts down that tree, said Bright. I know, Scamper said. Bucky, you know the big delicious tree in front of Gruff's house, the one he likes to lay in the shade when it's hot in the middle of the day? i give you permission to go over and cut down that tree. No, you don't, roared Gruff. Not if you know what's good for you. See, Scamper spoke to Gruff. You want us to move, but you won't move. Why is your shade tree more important than the tree we live in? Because I'm bigger than you are. (laughs) Just then, wise old owl flew up to see what all the trouble was about, and he took in the scene with a glance and asked Bucky, do you know why the tree is here? No, he said. It's probably because of the work of some of Scamper's grandparents. They spread seeds around and ate nuts, and this tree grew right here. Then turning to Scamper and Bright, he said, Do you know, do you like the pond and the marsh? Yes, they replied. Why do you think it's here? Well, they agreed it was the regular work of Bucky Beaver to maintain the pond. You see, you need each other. Wise old thou intoned, Fenton Forest is a community. Let's not live together like we lived alone. Eternal Father in heaven, let us live together in love and create communities of love that will be attractive to the people around us. For Jesus' sake, amen.